In other words. 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 Welcome to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency, made possible by the generous support of Lankelly Chase. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. The mission at Revolving Doors is to research and share evidence of effective ways to improve services for people stuck in the revolving door of crisis and crime. How? By working with national and local government, policymakers, commissioners, academic researchers, and people with lived experience. It's work that helps other organisations make life-changing differences. 2018 is Revolving Doors' 25th anniversary, so we're reinvigorating the conversation. We're gathering voices from across the sector to really get to the heart of the issues and questions we should all be asking. Revolving Doors may not agree with all the opinions that follow, but they're valuable contributions to the debate. We'd love to hear what you think, so join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag InOtherWords and our handle at RevDoors. In this episode of In Other Words, we want to explore the impact of so-called structural disadvantage, the roles, systems and opportunities available to some of us, but not others. Health, race and poverty feed into the cycle of crime, crisis and chaos. Do those factors push people over the edge and stop them from climbing back up? First, let's define our terms. In much of social research, the poverty line is defined as you having an income less than 60% of the median UK income after housing costs. The median is the middle value from the range of incomes in the UK. This is also known as relative poverty. Absolute poverty is defined as not having the money to afford the basics to live. The Destitution in the UK report, published this year by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, found that more than 1.65 million people in the UK, including 365,000 children, didn't have enough to afford to eat, stay warm and dry, or keep clean at some point in 2017. Levels of absolute poverty have declined by around 25% since 2015. Adam Tinson is head of research at the New Policy Institute, a think tank who use official government statistics as a basis for their research. Whenever we're talking about poverty, we're interested in what proportion of people are able to have a sort of decent standard of life relative to the average. We're not talking necessarily about absolute poverty uh, in the way that many people think. Uh, But using that definition, uh, in the most recent statistics, about 14 million people in the UK are in a household and low income. That's about 22% of the population. Um, We've also seen over the last maybe five or six years a lot more understanding work around this concept of destitution, which is when people uh, aren't able to pay for the absolute basics in life. So us going without um, heating or uh, adequate food for a few days, this sort of thing we've seen um, echoed in a huge rise in the use of food banks as well. So if you look over the last few years, we've had a pretty flat level of poverty on our headline rate. It's increased by a percentage point over the last couple of years to 22%. Um, but the picture we get is of also, maybe over a slightly longer period of time, the emergence of um, 
a group of people who are at bigger risk of being in a much more severe situation. Um, and a lot of that is linked to, I think, the changes we've seen um, to the social security system since 2010. Um, a lot of the uh, money cut from uh, budgets and austerity was in the social security budget. So we saw cuts to housing benefits, introduction of quite high profile things such as the bedroom tax and the benefit cap, which have left people who are um, already quite vulnerable with quite big cuts in their absolute income, um, as well as just a sort of general weakening of positions you know um lha caps which are um lha which is used to pay for uh, rent uh, in the private sector um have been unlinked from rents and then unlinked from inflation so people are seeing a growing gap between their rent and the amount of money they're getting in housing benefit to pay for that but is it that simple definitions of poverty shape our understanding of the issues and ultimately policy and practice Edward Davis is Policy Director at the Centre for Social Justice, or CSJ. He believes that the measure of relative poverty is misleading and focuses attention on the wrong things. Most people talk about, when they talk about poverty, that means 60% of the median income, which is a problem in itself because really that's a measure of income inequality, not poverty. The government doesn't recognise that statistic anymore, but is a widely used statistic. And the problem is, is actually, is that as you sort of increase the minimum wage, or even if you have a recession, actually, uh, more people uh, sort of, a recession is inversely proportionate to poverty. So if we have a recession, more people are lifted out of poverty because the median comes down. Whereas if you raise the minimum wage, the median goes up, more people are plunged into poverty. So we've got to be quite careful about how we sort of discuss what poverty is. Drawing on the expertise of 350 UK charities, the CSJ has instead established a model with five pathways to poverty. So educational failure, unemployment, family breakdown, addiction and debt. And the sort of the theory of change here is, is that essentially if you have none of these, you're in a pretty good place. So if I'm ticking along without any of these and I lose my job, I might be in trouble, but probably if I don't have any of the others, I'm, I'll probably be all right to get a new one. Whereas if I am uh, long-term unemployed and I don't have a good education actually suddenly there's things are stacking up against me. If I don't have a family uh, that can support me in times of hardship, then actually I don't have that first safety net. And so they all compound with each other. There's no sort of one thing is going to be the, 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 sort of the thing that gets you. But actually you'll find that most people living in a difficult situation often have multiples of those five pathways. It's really important that you sort of you take that social element alongside the financial element or you end up with a situation where yeah we can bump you up and down a poverty line and maybe you'll get over it maybe you get under it but we're never actually helping you fulfill your potential in a society such as ours you know it's a, a market-based society you sort of buy your way into everything with money adam tinson again so if you're on a low income then a lot of things just become closed to you um Suddenly you can't participate in the, you know, suddenly you just can't participate in a lot of the things that we take for granted. It might be as simple as not being able to pop into a cafe for a hot drink or not being able to buy your kids new school shoes. Or it might be not being able to afford to leave an abusive partner or being able to pay for legal advice or healthcare support. Poverty brings a lot of stress with it. Um, it's associated with poor health outcomes. I think the causality runs both ways. You can be in poverty because you have poor health and you're unable to work, uh, but also poverty eventually. I think the stress of it, living perhaps in poor quality accommodation uh, in the private rented sector, you know, it's got quite high instances of rising damp and other things that we call category one hazards, um, means that that can also impact on your health. 
And a sort of more stark example recently is the number of households in temporary accommodation who've been accepted as homeless by their local council. And the council's put them up temporarily um, before they can find them uh, a sustainable home. Um, We get a lot of reports on how the quality of these of this accommodation is extremely low you're very cramped um, it's often not very uh, clean um, it often makes people feel very unsafe as well which is going to have impacts on people's uh, mental health um, so that's just you know one of the examples in the way in which being poor is just uh, not good for your health Professor Suzanne Fitzpatrick is Director of the Institute for Social Policy, Housing and Equalities Research at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh. In her work, she's shown a clear link between poverty and other forms of disadvantage and social problems. What causes what? Poverty causes everything. Poverty combined with trauma are the key drivers of very poor outcomes in young adulthood, including homelessness and the other aspects of multiple and complex needs. Is it that simple? Yes. And when politicians and others keep telling you how complex it is and how difficult it is to understand and how we have to have all these kind of um, debates and, and, and so on about it, you know, there is a high degree of smoke and mirrors in that. Actually, we have, of course, any individual's life story is complicated. Everybody's life story is complicated. But if you look at what the overall recurring patterns are, those are very consistent. And we've done quite a lot of research that shows how consistent those patterns are. And childhood poverty, how damaging that is to a child's life chances in young adulthood, but also to family functioning, is made very, very clear in the uh, current evidence base developed by us, but also by other people. And so, for example, my colleague Lauren Bramley has shown that two-thirds of all child protection costs in England can be attributed to the poverty factor. So if we did something really serious about reducing levels of childhood poverty not only would we reduce the you know, direct material consequences of that which include destitution but also poverty has a very close interrelationship with all of the other extremely dysfunctional or very traumatic aspects of family life that affect some people so domestic violence very close interrelationship with poverty um, substance misuse particularly drug the most serious end of drug problems very close interrelationship uh, with poverty persistent and prolific offending very close interrelationship with poverty so whichever way you look however you cut up the data poverty lies at the heart of it does that mean that by addressing poverty you actually prevent the negative outcomes or might the causation be more complex than that Well, of course, um, there are very few things in life that are caused only by one thing. But the key point is this. Poverty is far and away the most powerful of the drivers. Of course, there are other drivers, there are other things going on in people's lives. But if you removed the poverty factor, the chances of people experiencing domestic violence, of experiencing childhood abuse and particularly neglect, of experiencing parental substance misuse, parental mental ill health would be very significantly reduced. It would have a more beneficial and positive impact than any single other thing that we can do. With the advantages of social and financial capital, many of us have what Christina Marriott, CEO of Revolving Doors, describes as a glass floor. So as our lives start going wrong, we can only fall so far. We have a family or a partner or a property, so we don't end up 
homeless and socially isolated. So that if if you are a child who's come from a wonderful place of affluence and you develop a substance misuse problem, it's highly likely your parents will get you into really good substance misuse services and your substance misuse problem will be a short bit of your life that you recover from and you'll be helped to recover from. We see the same around mental health services in young people. Um, women who come from positions of affluence very often can leave domestically violent situations. Women who don't come from positions of affluence often find it harder to leave. So the glass floor is the thing that bounces you back up and makes sure that you can't crash through to a really um, level of chaotic life. Professor David Wilson is a criminologist at Birmingham City University. What's the link between offending and poverty? I think there's a huge link between offending and poverty. I know people find that really um, uh, controversial when you say that. That's, again, one of those kinds of fantasies that we like to collude with. You know, we were poor, but we didn't steal. Um, And just because you're poor doesn't mean to say you're going to commit crime. But uh, you see offending increase when um, we are in a recession. Uh, Different types of offending take place in a recession, but generally the people who are committing the crimes that will lead to them going to jail will be people who are struggling financially. There will be people who are very wealthy who commit crime. And the kinds of white-collar crimes of our banks, our multinational corporations who fail to pay their taxes and so forth, those kinds of people don't, by and large, if they are caught for those crimes, don't get sent to jail. They get fined. They get other kinds of punishments if they're punished at all. So the criminal justice system tends to criminalize the crimes of the poor as opposed to the crimes of the rich. I don't think the public really knows that there is an impact to them of this increasing prison population because the public, by and large, don't engage in the real debate about prison. They engage in a sensationalized tabloid debate about the prison population, and therefore they imagine that everybody currently locked up in England and Wales is a violent serial killer, whereas in fact the vast majority of people who are currently locked up in England and Wales is a petty offender who's been committing crimes to pay for a drug habit. The scales of justice may be tipped against those facing poverty, social exclusion or prejudice. Poor physical and mental health can tip that balance further. Mark Brown is a mental health writer, known to many by his Twitter handle, at mark one in 4 It's interesting, at the minute there's this kind of, a lot of talk about, oh, mental health is, is a kind of equal opportunities challenge, um, it can affect anyone, but in reality... Um, like other social challenges, other wicked social problems, there's, um, there's a strong social gradient. So things that we know about mental health is you might have a genetic disposition towards experiencing mental health difficulty, which may or may not ever manifest in a mental health difficulty for you. Um, but we know that things like stress and adverse experiences make it much more likely. So... If you look at mental health as a situation where generally getting help and support earlier 
stops things getting worse. Um, help and support is not equally distributed through society. Um, so like, the, the challenge we have with, with mental health in general at the minute is it's what you might call um, a glacial apocalypse in that unlike other kind of social problems, social challenges, issues for society, there isn't ever like one big bang where something terrible happens. The terrible things happen in statistics and trends over time. So there isn't the equivalent of a moment where everyone goes, oh Christ, we should really be doing something about mental health because terrible things happened all at once. It kind of slowly and execrably creeps through the landscape. And that means that we don't really treat it as a structural problem. We treat it as an individual problem. And a lot of the, the rhetoric about mental health is kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps in one way or another because we see mental health treatment as being very, very individual. Um, but we tend to really forget that individuals are part of structures and material relations and conditions. What about the personal responsibility of someone who's committed a crime? I think when we talk about whether it's somebody's fault, whether they do something bad, we have to think about what we know about what leads people to do bad things. The two things we know, and we've spoken, for example, to nearly 2,500 people in this, in this circumstance over the last five years, the two things we repeatedly hear is that people have had traumatic childhoods, childhoods full of adverse childhood experiences like neglect and abuse and parental imprisonment and parental mental health issues and parental substance misuse and absent parents um, and physical abuse. So we hear of childhoods that were very difficult to start with, but those childhoods are are in a context of poverty and deprivation. So they are in a context where there is no helping hand out of them. There is no glass floor that stops you from crashing through. So on the whole, the revolving door of crisis and crime doesn't spring out of the person. It springs out of what happens to that person as a child, the trauma, and it springs out of being in a context that doesn't help you build resilience. Now, I think when we talk about personal agency, if you see it in that context, it's a bit different. This is not a moral failing of individuals. These are individuals who horrid things happen to within a context where, they, where their options for recovery are limited. So I don't deny that some things are really bad and, and some things need punishment. And very often prison is the appropriate place for that punishment. And, um, and nor do I deny that some people should be in prison for quite a long time. I think... More often what we're talking about, those who are in prison or those who are in the criminal justice for very short amounts of time, who are bouncing in and out for low-level, non-violent offences. I'm not defending those offences, and they might be very bad things. What we're saying is that a short, a short custodial sentence isn't the way of sorting them out. So the crude stereotypes are, are exactly those that we're familiar with, that black man might be um, aggressive, dangerous, and so on. And the Muslim woman is submissive, um, oppressed, um, and only unable to take advantage of opportunities. James Nazru, Professor of Sociology at the University of Manchester and a member of the Synergy Collaborative Centre, which explores the links between ethnicity, severe mental illness and deprivation. 
Professor Nazru is clear. Overall, people from ethnic minorities are more likely to face poverty, deprivation and inequality. Why? Because our society is racist. There's lots of research that has shown this, that um, the higher risk of poor mental health for ethnic minority people is driven at least in part by their poor socioeconomic circumstances. But I suggest that we need to think about the bigger picture, which is why ethnic minority people are in uh, more deprived um, circumstances, which connects back to what I was saying about the interrelationship between structural, uh, institutional and interpersonal racism and how that leads to poorer and more deprived circumstances. So, um, uh, my argument is that uh, the deprivation that ethnic minority people face as a consequence of those dimensions of racism then leads to a higher risk of poorer mental health. People have retained on average, the same levels of prejudice against ethnic minority people uh, over a number of decades. And uh, and ethnic minority people have experienced the same levels of racism over a number of decades. Because I'm talking in broad patterns, in detail there have been some changes, but in broad patterns this has remained uh, the same. Despite changes in policy, despite changes in social environment, uh, and despite shifts across generations, uh, we aren't really seeing decreases in levels of inequality. And there's that well-established link between socioeconomic inequality and ill health. In any way that you try and assess the association between deprivation and mental health, you show that the poorer people are, the more disadvantaged they are, the poorer circumstances in which they live, the poorer areas in which they live are all correlated with poorer mental health. And if you examine changes in mental health over time, then you see that um, deterioration in mental health is much more likely uh, the more deprived you are. Uh, so, So that relationship is absolutely very, very clear. The Lamy Review assessed the treatment of and outcomes for black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals in the criminal justice system in England and Wales. It was published in September 2017. BAME communities make up 14% of the population of England and Wales, but 25% of adult prisoners and 41% of under-18s in custody. The number of Muslim prisoners has increased by nearly 50% in the last 10 years. They now make up 15% of the prison population, despite representing just 5% of the wider population. And although youth offending has fallen over the last decade, black, Asian and other minority ethnic young people now make up a greater share of those offending for the first time, re-offending after conviction and those serving custodial sentences. Professor James Nazru again. So that process of becoming embedded in the criminal justice system inevitably leads to a greater risk of poorer mental health and uh, a greater risk that should be um, uh, paid attention to. And unfortunately, it's not, of course, or at least not to any serious extent. Uh, But the other uh, question, I think, or the other dimension of this is the ways in which the criminal justice system and some dimensions of the mental health system uh, seem to operate in very similar ways. Uh, So as well as uh, ethnic minority people being more likely to be arrested, being more likely to be charged, being more likely to receive a conviction, being more likely to be imprisoned, despite not being particularly more likely to commit a crime, is also reflected in the more coercive parts of the mental health system. So ethnic minority people um, are much more likely to be uh, locked up within a mental health uh, institution uh, under the Mental Health Act 
uh, and treated for a severe mental illness uh, than uh, white people. And those parallels, I think, are really um, important to consider. That whole process of coercive um, treatment that happens in uh, parts of the mental health system and in the uh, criminal justice system inevitably mobilise those racialized um, stereotypes. I'm not arguing that these are just invisible processes happening within the fabric of institutions. These are also processes that are acted upon by individuals. Um, so we have to recognise that this isn't just about institutional rules and procedures. This is also about the actions of individuals within institutions and how they are condoned or sanctioned. One of the stark differences between black and minority ethnic people and white groups identified in David Lammy's report was in plea decisions, whether someone who's been charged with an offence pleads guilty or not guilty. In 11 out of 12 offence types, BAME defendants are more likely to plead not guilty. It means they'll face the lengthy process of going to court. They'll reduce the chances of a non-custodial sentence, potentially have reduced access to interventions like early drug treatment, and if found guilty, they'll face a harsher sentence than if they pleaded guilty. So why do so many more ethnic minority defendants plead not guilty? Trust. Ethnic minority defendants are less likely to cooperate with the police less likely to trust the advice of legal aid-funded duty solicitors who are seen as part of the system, and they may have greater confidence in a jury rather than a magistrate to give them fair judgment. This lack of trust costs us all, defendants, victims and taxpayers. I think that evidence has been um, very well established uh, for some time and we need real political will um, uh, to achieve change. And that means taking on uh, alternative um, uh, uh, representations of what's going on, uh, challenging them, showing the evidence and standing by uh, the need to um, name racism uh, uh, and address uh, racism. Do do definitions of of service users or or people with multiple and complex needs or or severe and multiple disadvantage, do they ignore racial diversity? So they don't have to ignore um, uh, racial diversity. They don't have to ignore race. They don't have to ignore racism. Um, Those things can be talked about and they can be discussed within within the broader discussions of of, of those topics. Um, I think what's really important, though, is how they are talked about. So not so much that they're ignored, which they are to a certain extent, but when they're introduced, how they're talked about. And so the crucial issue really here is, is whether the broader processes of disadvantage are acknowledged or whether these groups are treated as special, as different and as having problems that are inherent to their cultural or racial um, identities. Uh, So thinking about the ways in which we talk about race, the ways in which we talk about um, uh, racism, I think is really very important when we discuss multiple disadvantage complex needs and so on. So instead of thinking in terms of homogenized, stereotyped groupings and the uh, common ways of understanding those groupings, to think carefully about how and why people end up in particular disadvantaged locations and then trying to address the drivers of that disadvantage rather than seeing the problem as internal to the individual's identity. decide what the policy priorities are, which inequalities we fight first, and where the money should go. 
Adam Tinson from the New Policy Institute. In general, we've just seen a weakening of the safety net um, in various ways. The areas with the highest deprivation have had to cut their funding on these services the most. In some areas of the country, if you have an income of zero, you can be expected to still pay up to 45% of your council tax. That's the highest one. The average is about 20-something percent. So that's a couple of hundred pounds a year for someone with a very, very low income. Um, And the other one is what used to be called the social fund, which was... um, help people in crises or if people were moving uh, into a tenancy from being homeless, for example, um, they would get support. Uh, This was also uh, had its funding cut and was given to councils. There was no statutory requirement to maintain a scheme. So as of last year, there were 26 areas of 26 councils in England where there were no, there was no such scheme. So if you had that sort of need in that area, you'd have to rely entirely on charities who themselves are facing big funding cuts um, and uh, don't necessarily have the resources to deal with all of that need. So, so the point where the money's allocated to the local authority to distribute, if it, if it doesn't have a sort of requirement that it stays for that particular purpose, they can use it to fill a different kind of funding gap somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And councils are under a huge amount of pressure. They've had huge funding reductions. And because a lot of the funding was uh, on a needs assessment, it means that the most deprived areas have generally had the biggest funding cuts and also have quite substantial uh, needs in your area. So um, actually, I think we've reshaped uh, what the British state looks like and delivers, particularly at the local level, without really having a proper debate on whether that was what we wanted or not. The public satisfaction scores for local government haven't declined sharply, but that might be in part because many of us don't engage with local services very much. We have our bins emptied, pay our council tax... We might have noticed the local library is struggling to stay open. But the impact for those of us rely on adult and child social care, youth or children's centres and preventative health and social care programmes has been significant. And some of the services for people with multiple and complex needs, the people who might not have that glass floor, have been hardest hit. Christina Marriott, CEO of Revolving Doors. I think as a society, we fund the services um, that we feel good about on the whole, and we don't necessarily fund the services that would make the most sense. Um, So we know, for example, there is a really clear return on investment for substance misuse services. If you spend on substance misuse services, you will save money as a society. You will save it in criminal justice services. But we also know that they're not necessarily the most popular services to spend money on. So as local councils are are balancing their budgets between substance misuse services as part of public health or, for example, adult social care for older people, I would hazard a guess that public perception or public support would go to the older people. I mean, this should not be a competition between one form of funding and another because that makes no sense as a way of allocating our money as a society and it makes no sense as a way of commissioning services. I think our clear argument is there are some services we can commission which will make our communities safer, allow us to have less victims of crime and actually help people turn their lives around. And we have all of the cost-benefit analysis that we could possibly need to show that return on investment we know it works. Whether we choose to invest in it is a different question. 
Edward Davis, policy director at the CSJ, agrees that the foundations for supporting someone moving away from the criminal justice system, addiction and health support, employment and housing, are well established. It seems like common sense. Why isn't it being done? Is it a lack of political will? Is it public apathy? Is it a lack of money? I mean, it is hard. I think one of the things we struggle with at the CSJ is that basically if, if something becomes political, it's because it's hard. Otherwise, you would just do it. Um, I think there is there is a, a huge complex number of reasons. I think some of it is public apathy that plays into a political apathy. People don't love prisons. Um, they're, they're a hard sell. How do you tell the public that you're going to spend X amount more on a prisoner? So I think actually the first thing that we have to do is make sure that the evidence base on which we're making these recommendations is phenomenally strong. So that when a government says, you know, I'm going to put more money in prisons, they can say, and we know this is the right thing to do because it will help the prisoner and it will help the taxpayer and everyone benefits from this. Public attitudes towards and understanding of offending and notions of justice and fairness only get us so far because the playing field isn't level. Negative personal experiences and the likelihood of getting involved with the criminal justice system are deeply embedded in structural disadvantage. There are definitely systemic issues that the government has to address at a larger level. I mean, if you come from one of the poorest areas in the country, you are 27 times more likely to go to an inadequate school, which is a huge systemic failing and something that actually the government should be doing something about. And if you look at maps of the country, I mean, you can see that really we've never quite recovered from some of the post-industrial era era, uh, around the UK. And so there is a huge role for government thing, actually, how can we regenerate these areas? And that's not down to individuals, that is a broader thing. I mean... I say it's not down to individuals again, it's always a little bit, you know, I mean, if you can encourage entrepreneurism again, if the government can be an enabling state by, by changing local tax incentives, if you can encourage people to set up businesses, then brilliant. But there is obviously a big role for government there as well. How do we rehabilitate offenders? Sat is a member of Revolving Doors Lived Experience team. He's spent time inside and has a vision of what could be possible if the focus shifted to helping rather than just incarcerating. Let's talk cash. It's £40,000 for a prisoner, basic standard prisoner, without any additional needs. When you're talking mental health needs, other, other you know, kind of health needs, um, medication, then the numbers go up. But let's suggest I've got your loved one with me. Let's say it's your, your son or your daughter, your brother or your sister, your niece or your nephew, your mother or your father, your loved one, and I've got your £40,000. What would you rather I did with it? Would you rather I took your loved one, put them in a prison, and there I spent your £40,000? Or, here's an alternative for you. Give me your loved one. Give me that £40,000. We'll get the... I, I, I'm saying this is my idea, so I'm, I'm just going to say it in this is what I would do. I would get them employment for six months where the employer doesn't have to pay out of that forty thousand pound there's six months of employment paid the agreement is that if they if they finish if they do that if they if they, if they uh, complete that six months trial period the employer takes them on full time and pays them the re- the other six uh the the rest of the year six months so let's say a 20 grand wage uh uh we've only spent 10 grand so far we've got 30 grand left we get him uh housed uh, uh with rent paid off for six months to co- coincide with the with this sort of trial period uh there's his rent paid off uh you can get him a, a mobile phone contract paid for the year you can get him a laptop 
You could get them the internet package, what they need at the home. You could get them training to support their employment. You could get them tools and van to, empl- uh, to, 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 to actually you know, facilitate their trade. Uh, and how much have we probably not even spent 2025 yet? Still got 15, 10, 15, 20 grand left. I mean, and, and that's, that's, that's more of a, already, that's six months secure of a person getting back into a very more meaningful and fulfilling life. And yet we've still not spent all the £40,000. And, and I'd say it's, it's a lot more than that for, for people with more, uh, more, more difficult needs. So, yeah, I mean, for those who really do care about the money, they should see the sense in that. You've got a completely rehabilitated and redirected of in- individual for less than half the price of the, of the, of the criminal justice system. More than £1.3 billion has been committed by the government to reforming and modernising the prison estate. But the prison population is growing faster than projections allowed, meaning old prisons may not be closed in exchange for new. Despite the focus on building more prisons, on current population projections, there'll be no impact on overcrowding before 2022 and additional capacity will be required in the estate by 2026. Mark is a member of the Revolving Doors lived experience team, a peer mentor and part of a panel currently assessing performance in prisons. I asked him, does prison work? It's different for different people, so um, it can work and also can go the opposite way. It depends on the individual situation. That's why I think as uh, people are doing a sentence, um, wherever they're inside for, their treatment should be tailored in a sense that they can, that's where rehabilitation comes out of. You can't, one glove doesn't fit all. So you have to look at individual cases and see what helps for that particular individual. Now, if you can do that, then the system, I think, will start to work. But if you're going to paint, use one paintbrush to to paint everybody the same colour or the the same shade or whatever it is, it ain't going to work. Quite simply, what needs to change within within a prison system is that they need to actively listen to the actual inmates. Um, and what would they hear if they did? They would hear that they do need help and they're will, willing to accept help, but the right type of help, not just, throw, uh, not just throw someone willy-nilly into a situation. They need someone that's properly trained, um, someone that's willing to listen, someone that can deal with confidentiality, someone that they can trust. You know, these, these, or put these elements together, it would be a positive movement. It would be a positive way forward. But until they do something like that, things are not going to change. You've been listening to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency. Check out the website for the other episodes in this series and join the discussion online, on Twitter and in person. Together, we can improve the system and end the revolving door. In the next episode in this series, we'll be exploring the impact of trauma on people's experiences of crime and crisis.